0: All right, if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 1. If you came in late this morning, you may not have seen or noticed, but a very good friend is back with us this morning. And it is good to see you. Emotion. It is very good to see you. All right. Get myself together. Before we dive into the text this morning, I want to kind of give a recap of where we've been because it's been a while um, since we were in Philippians. I started Philippians last October, I think, and um, we're going to kind of slowly work our way through this um, in time. But we first looked at the book of Acts. We went to Acts chapter 16 and we looked at how the church in Philippi even came into existence. And we started looking at the background. And the church got its start when Paul and his traveling companions first crossed into Europe on their way to Macedonia. They stopped at Philippi where they met a group of women down by the river. This group included a woman named Lydia. Lydia. In whose house the church would begin to meet. Now, Lydia, if you remember from Acts 16, tells us that she was a lady from Thyatira. We just looked at Thyatira um, a few weeks ago. It's one of the one of the churches mentioned in the Book of Revelation that Dope walked us through. So she's from that city. Has moved to Philippi. Very wealthy lady. She trades in uh, the Scriptures tell us in purple cloth. Um, so she's from a well-to-do family. And Paul meets her and some other women um, down by the river, and leads her to faith in Jesus Christ. You can read the account of the church beginnings in Acts chapter sixteen, and I, I would encourage you to take a look at that this week. It's 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 an amazing encounter that Paul has there, and um, he later finds himself. He and Silas find themselves in uh, prison in Philippi. They've uh, disturbed the peace. Uh, The people didn't like it, and so they're thrown in prison um, and miraculously are freed from their chains one night when an earthquake happens. This leads to the conversion of the jailer along with his family. And so you have the jailer and his family, Lydia and her family, and some others. And this group formed the beginnings of the church at Philippi. Over the years, Paul maintained close ties with the church, and they were strong partners in his ministry. Uh, In many ways, they helped to finance his ministry and also uh, sent, in particular, a guy named Epaphroditus um, to encourage him, to kind of serve him while he was in prison in Rome. We'll look at the life of Epaphroditus more when we get to um, chapter 2. This letter, the letter to the Philippians, is in many ways a letter of thanks to the Philippian church. It's a, it's a letter of thanks for their partnership in ministry. And in fact, the first 11 verses that we looked at last fall, Paul expresses his thanksgiving for them. Now, as a reminder, there's a specific theme to the book of Philippians, and you can see it on the screen. It's that of joy. Constant references to joy or rejoicing are found throughout the book. Some 16 times, in fact, either joy or rejoicing are mentioned. And this is particularly important because Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. But he could rejoice in his circumstances. He didn't let his circumstances master him, but rather he allowed Christ to rule the circumstances for him. And so this letter is a great encouragement to anyone who is down. Or discouraged, And I mentioned this last fall when we looked at this, but I'll say it again today. If you're here and this describes you, if you're down or discouraged, I would highly encourage you to read this short little letter. It will take you about 15 minutes to read through it. But I think that you will find such great encouragement in Paul's words to the church at Philippi. Paul rose above his negative circumstances and was able to Experience joy, or rather he chose joy. He chose to rejoice. I rejoice, he says. That's a choice that he made. And as we continue to walk through this short letter, we will find instruction on how to live victoriously and joyously in the midst of the normal difficulties of life and even perhaps more difficult circumstances in life. That's the specific theme of the book, but there's also a general theme of the book that runs throughout the letter, and that is the general theme of Christ. He is mentioned as Lord or Jesus Christ over 50 times in this short book. The name of Christ or Jesus Christ occurs 17 times in the first chapter alone. This message, the message found in this letter for Christians is that Jesus is available for helping us to cope with the problems of life. He is... Our hope. In chapter 1, we see that Christ is our life. In chapter 2, Christ is our example. In chapter 3, Christ is our confidence. And in chapter 4, Christ is our strength. Back in February, we looked at verses 12 through 18. We got a clear understanding of the circumstances in which Paul finds himself. So he's living in, in Rome under house arrest. He's not being held in a traditional prison. He's allowed to live in a place that he has to pay for; it's rented accommodation. But he's chained to a guard twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. And we, we talked about this chain in particular. It's not a long chain to where you know he's a guard sitting on the other side of the room. It's it's the chain that's described here in the New Testament is more of like our handcuffs, short maybe 18 inches between him and this guard 24 hours a day 7 days a week and yet in spite of these circumstances the gospel has continued to advance and that was kind of the topic of our sermon last time the gospel is continuing to advance advance everyone has heard of Paul's arrest and that his imprisonment is for Christ because that is why he's in prison Not for any other reason, but because of his faith. This has resulted in an increased confidence and boldness among the brothers who are now speaking the word without fear. In the midst of this advance, there are those who are preaching Christ from goodwill. There are others who are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, seeking to afflict Paul even further. But the remarkable thing in all of this is what Paul says in verse 18. Look at it with me. Chapter 1, verse 18. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, he says, I rejoice. In other words, Paul is saying, so what? I don't care. Whether you're preaching the gospel in truth or you're preaching from a place of false pretense, the gospel is advancing. And in that, I rejoice. So this brings us to today's passage, and I want to read it together. I want to back up a little bit. Um, We'll start reading in verse 18. We'll read down through uh, verse 26. Let's read this together. So he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through the prayers, through your prayers, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. First point that I want to look at this morning is this. Paul was confident in the word of truth. Paul was confident in the word of truth. He trusted God's word. Paul believes that his distress, his current distress, is only temporary. That's really what he's saying. He said, this is, it's temporary. It's not going to last. He has confidence here that he will be delivered out of this. So the question for us is how? How can Paul be so sure? And I find this really interesting. He makes this statement. He says, I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance. Now, this is a quote from Job. Job chapter 13, verse 16. You don't have to turn there this morning, but if you want to write that down, you can. I'll start reading in verse 15. Job says this: He says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. <coughs> don't see this as well in the ESV, because the ESV uses the phrase, this will be my salvation. But other translations like the NIV use the same phrase that Paul uses here. This will turn out for my deliverance. Paul was a scholar in the scriptures, and obviously identified his problems, his own problems, and his own struggle with that of Job. He knew the story of Job, in fact, all the Jews know the story of Job. And he knew that Job was a righteous man and that God put Job, the righteous man, in a situation of suffering. But Job knew that no matter what he went through, God would deliver him out of it. Job knew that even to the point of death. Listen to this from Job chapter 19. Probably familiar verses. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job says, even if worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall what? What does he say? I shall see God. He knows that one way or another, in this life or eternally, God would deliver him. Why? Because God delivers the righteous. That's an Old Testament principle. Job knew it because it was the truth about God even before the Old Testament was written. Paul knew it. and Paul is identifying with Job, who is a righteous man, going through very difficult times, who also said... I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance. And Paul quotes Job because he takes security in the truth of the word of God. Life point this morning, you can take security in the truth of the word of God. Parents, teach your kids to take security in the truth of the word of God. God delivers the righteous. It's an amazing principle. And it should, I hope, this morning instill a confidence in us, a confidence in our God. You can really see this as you read through the Psalms. A lot of these are going to be on the screen behind me. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. But I'd encourage you just to jot down the, the references and maybe spend some time this afternoon just looking through the Psalms at the deliverance that God promises to the righteous. Psalm 5, verse 12. He says, you bless the righteous. Psalm 7, verse 9, you establish the righteous. Psalm 14, 5, God is with the generation of the righteous. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Psalm 34, 17, the Lord hears and delivers the righteous. 34, 19, the Lord delivers the righteous. 3717, the Lord upholds the righteous. 3739, salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Psalm 9212, the righteous flourish. Psalm 9711, light is sown for the righteous. Psalm 112, verse 6, the righteous are remembered forever. That's just a few. So we can rejoice today in the face of death for the same reason. We can be confident that if we face death because of righteousness, like Peter, like James, like Paul, they all say kind of a variation of this. We can count it joy. We can rejoice because God will deliver us. He may deliver us here in this life. He may deliver us eternally, but He will deliver us. That's His words promised to us. Secondly, this morning, Paul was confident in the power of prayer. He says verse 19, he says, for I know that through your prayers, he believed in prayer, he was confident in prayer, and he called people in this particular occasion, he called the Philippians to pray for him. He did this often, we won't. Look at all of these, but I would encourage you again to write these down and look at them later. <coughs> Romans 15, 30. Paul asks them to strive together. He uses that word, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. If you want to look at this one with me, you can turn one page back. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. I'll go back to verse 16. He says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can ex- extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, he says, and also for me. He's asking for prayer here that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So he's asking the, the church in Ephesus to pray for him to have boldness. He believed that God worked his purpose through the prayers of his people. And so he said, this will work out for my deliverance. Why, Paul? How can you say that? Because the word says God delivers the righteous. And because the prayers of the saints are effective. Thirdly, Paul was confident in the provision of the Spirit. Verse 19 again, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ... This will turn out for my deliverance. He's confident that the Holy Spirit will provide what he needs. Do you hear his confidence here? Such great confidence that the Spirit is the provider. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, You'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In John 14, Jesus says, I'll send you the helper, the comforter, He's the one that's coming that will give you everything that you need. And the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians 5, he says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Whatever you need, the Spirit will provide. Just this morning I had to I had to practice some self-control, and I, I needed the power of the Spirit to do that. I was driving this morning on country road, two-lane road, double yellow lines all the way down it, and a guy pulls up, just riding my bumper, and then he whips around me, takes off down the road, and I had been praying up to that point in my on my drive about the service, and then I found I was just angry. <laughs> at the man who thought the rules didn't apply to him. And I wasn't I was driving the speed limit, maybe a little bit more, but I wasn't going fast enough for him and so I had to ask the spirit for some gentleness and self-control. And he gave it to me. He did. I my blood was boiling a little bit and then it it just simmered back down. And I went on praying as I drove. But the Spirit, you know, a simple little illustration, but the Spirit provides those things that we need in the times that we need them. He is the provider who brings the provision. And every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit, and every Christian then has that resource, that provision. Paul knew what Zechariah 4.6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit says the Lord. He is our provider. Fourthly, Paul was confident in the promise of Christ. See this in the beginning of verse 20. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. He was confident in the promise of Christ. This is probably more implied here rather than explicit, but I think we can see this. He says, it's my eager expectation, it's my hope, that I'm not going to be at all ashamed, but I will be courageous, and that Christ will be honored in my body. What he's saying there is simply this, I'm confident in the promise of Christ, that if I'm faithful to Him, He will be exalted In me. That if I'm never ashamed of him, he'll never be ashamed of me. Jesus said in Mark 8.38 as well as in Matthew 10.32, he says, If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. But if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. Strong words. Strong warning to us. But Paul was confident in the promise of Christ. Fifthly, and this is where we're going to kind of camp out and spend the rest of our time. Paul was confident in God's plan. Start in verse 20 again. It says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul is confident in God's plan. He doesn't know what it is. It might be life. It might be death. But he's confident in it. He says, whether by life or death, I will boldly move on. For God's plan is God's plan and I rejoice in it. He's confident in the plan of God. He didn't know whether he was going to live. He didn't know whether he was going to die. And then he sums it up in this great statement. Verse 21. This is the the capstone verse of this entire book. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's it. Life is summed up As Christ. In this statement, Paul Paul is saying a lot of things. I'm filled with Christ. I am occupied with Christ. I trust Christ, love Christ, hope in Christ, obey Christ, preach Christ, follow Christ, fellowship with Christ. Christ is the center of my life. It's all Christ. Christ and Christ alone is my inspiration, my direction, my meaning, my purpose. Paul is consumed and dominated by Christ. His life is dominated by his love for Christ. His life is dominated by his devotion to Christ. This man is a, he has a one-track mind. He's a focused man. It's an incredible thing. That we see in the testimony of the Apostle Paul. You see it's why it didn't matter to him. It didn't matter to him whether he had trouble. It didn't matter to him whether he had people who opposed him. It didn't matter to him that he was in prison. It didn't matter to him whether he died. The only thing that mattered to him was Christ. And if the gospel went forward and if Christ was preached. That's all that mattered. I want us to kind of personalize this verse a little bit. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I want to take the word Christ out, and I want to put a blank there. For me, to live is blank. To die is what? Gain or loss. So let's put some things in in those blanks. Money and wealth. Okay. If living is wealth, then dying is what? It's not gain. It's loss. If living is wealth, then dying is loss. You see, it doesn't matter if you're the richest person in the world. I don't know who that is these days. It seems to flip-flop back and forth. If you're Elon Musk today, it doesn't matter. The amount of money that you take with you when you die is exactly the same amount as the poorest person on the planet. 0. You lose it all. What about fame? If living is fame, then dying is what? Is it gain? No. It's also loss. What about power? If living is power, then dying is loss. If Living is possessions, then dying is lost. If you're looking for fame, you lose it when you die. You're forgotten, eventually. If you're looking for power, you lose it when you die, because you're lifeless. You have no control anymore. You're looking for possessions, they're all gone when you die. It's all over. The only thing that you can put in there to make the last part make sense is Christ. If you put in that blank anything but Christ, the last word has to be loss. Right? Only Christ makes dying gain. Only Christ. Otherwise, it's loss. That's such a hugely significant statement. Because you look at the world that we live in, you you look at the culture that surrounds us. What are people living for? They're living for everything but Christ. And in the end, it results in loss. If you're in this room today and you don't know Christ, you're living for something, but it's not Him. And in the end, it will be loss. But for those of us who are in Christ this morning, in the end, we gain. Death is not the end for us. Death is not a loss for us. Death is our gain because we gain Christ. In the next few verses, we we see that there were really only two things in Paul's life. Only two. Christ and his church. It's almost like he's saying, if I had the choice, I'd rather be with him for my sake. But if I had the choice, I'd rather be with you for your sake. You see the dilemma? This is the dilemma of a godly servant. This was Paul's dilemma. He's caught between two things. This tremendous love for Christ and this passionate love for the church. And those two things are the things that control his life. Nothing else matters to Paul. Nothing else matters but those two things. And he can't choose one over the other. So he leaves it with the Lord. The man lived for Christ, consummately lived for Christ. So much so that the only dilemma of his life was whether to live or die. To die was to be with Christ, to live was to serve Christ. That's all that mattered to him. It should be all that matters to us. It doesn't matter what trouble we're in, it doesn't matter what detractors we have, it doesn't matter whether we are faced with death. It doesn't matter whether we stay in the flesh and live on. It only matters that Christ is preached, that Christ is exalted, that Christ is honored, and that the church is built. Paul sets that pattern for us. and May his example be our goal as we grow in Christ. as I begin to kind of wrap this up, I want us to reflect on a few questions. Because I think this is, this is significant. Paul's perspective was an eternal perspective. He lived with eternity in mind. And I would suggest to us that most Christians who live in a free society like ours cannot identify with Paul's dilemma or his perspective on life. Not very easily. Now we. The world in which we live. In our culture and society. We are today free. No one faced any issues. Getting here this morning. But we also know that we have brothers and sisters around the world. That for them today. That's not the case. Many. If they're not living in persecution, live with the threat of persecution every day of their lives. And so their perspective on these things is vastly different from ours. And one day we may face the very things that they're facing. But until then, my first question for us this morning is, how can we maintain an eternal perspective in our freedom? One way, I think, is to read the stories of those who have gone through persecution. If you've been around LifePoint for any amount of time, you know that this is something that I bring before you quite often. There's this desire to pray for the persecuted church. And that's partly because I've been to some of the areas of the world where this is a reality for people. And it's, it's just become something that God has laid on my heart over the years. And I find it very challenging and encouraging to read some of their stories. Both those who have come through persecution and are still alive today, but also those who have gone through persecution and paid the ultimate sacrifice of their life for the cause of Christ. These stories serve to bolster our faith, much like what took place in Rome here with Paul, as many were emboldened and given confidence because of what Paul had been through. They saw what he was experiencing and it encouraged them, it challenged them, it gave them a boldness that they hadn't had before, and they were preaching the gospel across Rome and the Roman Empire because of the testimony of Paul and what he was experiencing. And so I, I want to encourage you, if you're not already familiar with, Websites like Voice of the Martyrs, Global Christian Relief, there's others out there as well that highlight the stories of our persecuted brothers and sisters across the globe. Read those stories. They're so challenging and humbling to read. In fact, um, I brought one of these with me so I can remember. We have a number of these. We handed these out last year. There's a number still in the foyer out there on the information table Take one with you. Take it home. This is called When Faith is Forbidden 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. It says on the back they took a stand for their Savior even when it was costly. Their stories can help us do the same. Pick one up on the way out. There's some out there if you haven't already gotten one. But interestingly enough um, I was checking email early this morning and there was an article in my inbox from Crossway. They're the company that produces the ESV Bible, and the the title of it is Courage is Courageous, and it was just kind of a a quick kind of walk through Philippians chapter 1, so I read it, and I wanted to to share just a few highlights of some of the things that he said in the article, because it's so fitting for what we're looking at today. He said, here's the principle, this is the principle of, he says, Philippians chapter 1, seeing courage spreads courage. Seeing boldness awakens boldness. Seeing fearlessness overcomes fear. He says, Paul has a desire, a desire-driven, Christ-treasuring courage in the face of looming loss and death. For him to live is Christ and to die is gain, and this reality works in him indomitable courage in the face of opposition, imprisonment, and death. He goes on to say, when Paul's brothers and fellow workers see his courage, their confidence in the Lord grows. Paul's courage is contagious. They catch it and their courage grows. They are literally encouraged by Paul's courage. And because Paul's courage is rooted in seeing Christ as his greatest treasure, his brethren's confidence is not in Paul, but in Christ. They are confident in the Lord. And their confidence in the Lord produces boldness in the face of opposition. They are emboldened by Paul's boldness and speak the word without fear in the face of opposition. He closes the article with this. He says, the lesson of Philippians 1 is clear. Courage is contagious. Boldness spreads. Fearlessness is infectious. And when these virtues are caught, Christ is magnified. I hope that even just reading through this chapter in Philippians has encouraged you today and given you some boldness to declare what God has done for you to those that you live with, live next to, go to school with, work with, whatever the case might be. This is something that we need to think about and keep in mind. That we need to maintain an eternal perspective like Paul did. It's more challenging for us, as I've already mentioned, because we live in freedom. But in that freedom, we must maintain an eternal perspective. Second question for us to think about today is, when I face trials, and perhaps persecution... Is my primary focus on getting out? Or is my primary focus on the exaltation of Christ? You see, Paul wasn't, he wasn't looking for an out. The Philippians know this because they know his story of when he was in, in their city. He and Silas at midnight they're in a prison cell and what are they doing they're singing praises to God they're not trying to hatch an escape plan they're not trying to figure out hey how can we get out of here they're singing praises to their God their primary focus Paul's primary focus is the exaltation of Christ, no matter the circumstances. Can we say that? When we face trials, when we face difficulties, is our first reaction to try to get out of it, look for a way out? Or is our first reaction to (coughs) praise Christ, to exalt Him in the midst of our trials and our suffering? Third question, am I about me or am I about Christ? That's the thing that I took away from this, these verses is Paul is all about Christ. There's nothing in here that even hints at Paul's interests other than being with Christ. Do you know that one of Satan's most effective temptations is to tell believers, yes, you should do that good work for God. Just do it later. Yeah, go on that mission trip, but right now you may not, there's not enough money in the bank account, or you don't have enough vacation time, or the kids are too young, just just Wait. Push it down the road a little bit. you ever faced something like that? You ever heard that temptation? That he whispers in your ear. Go ahead. Do that good work for God. Just wait till tomorrow. I can wait. You don't need to do that today. That's what happens when I put me before Christ. How many of us in this room have thought to ourselves that we'll do this, we'll do that for the Lord when we have more time, when we have more money, whatever? That time may never arrive. Paul was resolved to live his life for the Lord while he was able to, he was going to make the most of every opportunity. I'm chained to a guard that guy's hearing about Jesus. And at the shift change, I'm chained to another guard. That guy's going to hear about Jesus too. In fact, we read it in, earlier in chapter one. The entire imperial guard heard about Jesus. Paul was resolved to live his life for the Lord. Paul wasn't attached to this world. He was ready to be with Jesus. But his hope of being with Christ didn't mean that he just sat around dreaming of heaven, doing nothing here on earth. No, instead, his hope to be with Christ motivated him even further to spread the gospel. Why? Because he wanted others to have that same opportunity and the same hope to be with Christ. One last question. back in May Doke and David and I were in Asia and I gave this talk and was challenging pastors and church leaders and this applies directly to those involved in church leadership but I think it also applies to every believer are we so consumed with love for Christ that the deepest longing of our heart is to be with Him, but on the other hand, so consumed with the love of His church and the need of His church that our heart's desire is also to be with them. And do we live in that tension? And only that tension. Therein lies the challenge. Because we live in a culture that tries to pull us a thousand different ways every day. The only tension that should be in our lives is the tension of being with Christ or being with His church. Serving Him or serving His church. Living for Him. Are we so consumed today that Christ is our only focus? I'm not there yet. That's where I want to be. I want to be like the Apostle Paul, who seemed to live and breathe Jesus. That every thought that he had was about Christ. Now I know he wasn't perfect. No one is perfect but Christ alone. But he was in such a focused state of mind. That Christ was first in all things. And that's where I want to be. Let's take confidence today in God's word. Let's be confident in prayer. Let's be confident in the provision of the Spirit. Let's be confident in God's plan for our lives. Because he's trustworthy, he is faithful and he is true our hope in life and in death is Christ alone would you pray with me